Good day, and welcome to another edition of Detroit Today here on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've tuned in. There are few areas of American life entrenched with as many myths as the topic of American poverty. This idea of the welfare freeloader has been used by countless politicians to advance their agendas over the years, and yet truth reveals a much different and in many ways more disturbing picture. Just for a second, close your eyes and try to picture a typical American who lives in poverty. Who is that person? What color is that person? What gender is that person? Where does that person live? In many ways, it's likely that you have conjured an image that doesn't really reflect what happens in this country. According to an expert joining us for this hour, the majority of Americans will experience poverty at some point in their adult lives. Let me say that again. The majority of Americans will experience poverty at some point in their adult lives. And in wrapping our minds around this fact, it's not hard to think of the idealized images of America as a land of boundless opportunity for those willing to pull themselves up by their proverbial bootstraps. However, what we miss when we buy into that narrative is the reality that there are systems in place that prevent a lot of people from buying those storied boots in the first place. So what are the causes of this widespread hardship? And how can we collectively overcome the myths and the misinformation around poverty that have increasingly intensified in recent years? Joining me for this discussion is Mark Rank. He is a professor of social welfare at the Brown School at Washington University in St. Louis. And he's co-author of the new book, Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. Mark Rank. Welcome to Detroit Today. Well, thanks, Stephen. Uh, your introduction was fantastic. That was like uh, uh, grasping so many points that uh, we want to make during the hour. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm really excited for this conversation because I think you are absolutely right that many of us, or maybe most of us, really misunderstand poverty, its causes, and therefore uh, its solutions. So let's start with uh, a general definition of poverty in this country. How's it measured? What are the flaws of using the ways that we do measure poverty uh, to, to, to decide who is poor? Yeah, so um, that's a good place to start. So the way that we uh, measure poverty in this, this country is we say if you fall below a certain income level, um, in terms of your overall household income for the year, uh, we're going to count you in poverty. If you're above that level, uh, we're not going to count you as being in poverty. So, for example, last year, the this poverty line for a family of three was around $20,000. So if that family earned less than that during the year, they would be counted as in poverty. If they were, if they were above that, they would not be counted as in poverty. And what you can kind of see from this in terms of the drawbacks is, the measure itself is extremely conservative. So, 
you know, try imagining um, living below that level. And, and the point that should be made here is that that represents poverty at its most opulent level. It turns out that about 45% of people in poverty in the United States fall below half the poverty line. So instead of a family trying to survive on less than $20,000, imagine trying to survive on less than $10,000. So um, it's a very, very um, conservative measure, but it is a measure that, that gets at you know who's really in, in economic trouble. And one of the really important points that you draw out in the book is about the fluidity of mm-hmm. this this measure. In other words, mm-hmm. uh, people move up and down that spectrum, uh, that income spectrum, far more frequently than I think most of us think uh, they do. I think uh, for a lot of us, the idea of poverty is, is kind of static, that there are poor people and there are non-poor people. Uh, what you're pointing out is that all of us kind of exist along that same continuum and people can slip in and out of that designation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even the the phrase poor people kind of implies this static kind of image. And yes, uh, most people move in and out of poverty. So uh, most people who experience poverty do so for a year or two. They then get uh, above the poverty line for a period of time, and they might experience poverty you know, down the road. So poverty is a much more fluid sort of concept than this static image. Uh, of, of, of everybody who experiences poverty, about 10 to 15% of folks will be uh, in poverty for a long period of time, like eight or 10 years. But for 85, 90% of people, it's fairly short term. And, and again, that, as you point out, that goes against this myth that we have of, oh, if you're in poverty, it's the same folks every year after year. No, it turns out there's a lot of churning that happens in terms of poverty. And so when we think of it that way, um, what is it that we are then getting wrong about uh, the causes of, of poverty mm-hmm. and then the solutions? Why do people move up and down uh, that spectrum the way they do? And what is it about, uh, about that movement that we, that we aren't getting? So the, the kind of the three main things that throw folks into poverty and, and thinking about it as this fluid kind of pattern – are um, job-related, so folks losing their job or getting cut back, Um, family-related, so families splitting up, or health-related. And those are the kind of things that can happen to just about anyone. And that's why, you know, at the top of the hour, you mentioned my work that shows that over the course of a lifetime, a vast majority of Americans will experience poverty. And that is because if you think about over time, these things are quite likely to occur. And so, um, and, and, and really what we do in this country is rather, and, and this gets more to the, um, to the causes, rather than protect people from falling into poverty, we punish people who fall into poverty. We punish them by not having decent programs to support folks. Um, we punish them in terms of, you know, jobs that don't pay a living wage. So, um, so again, this kind of goes against that, that image of, um, you know, folks just not working hard or being lazy or something like that. Yeah. Uh, the, the idea that poverty is 
event driven as opposed to uh, as opposed to maybe a, even a function of, uh, of of longer term kinds of uh, characteristics. So, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, that that poverty can be caused by something that that happens today to you and have nothing to do with. Uh, with education, your level of education, which is something that I think in this country we absolutely identify with uh, with your station, your economic station. If you're uh, if you're a college graduate, uh, you're you're going to be better off uh, than somebody who's not. Uh, talk about the relationship between those things, and again, the myths that that we yeah. are kind of clinging to. Yeah. So here's the analogy I like to use that I think really brings this to the fore. Picture a game of musical chairs, and we have eight chairs and 10 players. Players circle around, music stops, two people are lose out. Well, who's going to lose out? Well, it'll be somebody who um, is not as fast, is not as agile. They were in a bad position when the music stopped. And, and we can point to those reasons for why those two folks lost out. But if we step back and say, wait a minute, the game is structured so that two people are going to lose out then those characteristics only explain who loses out at the game, not why the game produces losers in the first place. Mm. And that's what we've been doing in terms of poverty. We've been focusing on the characteristics of who loses out. So as you point out, folks with less education, less skills, and so on. But the fact that there aren't enough decent paying jobs in this country, the fact that we don't have social programs that support people mean that two people are going to lose out. And um, and again, what we do is we focus on the losers of the game rather than why the game produces losers in the first place. And what I'm suggesting here is really in order to address poverty, we need to focus on the structure of the game. Now, what does that sort of imply? What I've just been saying is that over the last 40 or 50 years, one of the problems in the United States is that we've been producing more and more low-wage work. Mm -hmm. So these jobs just don't you can be working full time at, at these jobs and 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 still be in poverty. Um, we don't provide the kind of supports that many other countries provide, for example, universal health care or child care. And so the structure in the United States, the economic and the political structure, um, sort of ensure that some people are going to lose out. And just to just to finish the thought here, another way of thinking about this, is comparing the United States to other countries. So if we compare the United States to other sort of high economy countries in Europe and um, Australia, Japan, and so on, we find that the United States has the highest rates of poverty. It has the the, the most extreme poverty of, the, of these countries, and it has the greatest amount of income inequality. Now, does that have to do with individual characteristics? Does that have to do with Americans not working hard enough? No, it has to do with the structure of the economy and the structure of our political system that ensure in a way that there is a a fair number of folks who fall into poverty. I'm talking with Mark Rank, a professor of social welfare at the Brown School at Washington University in St. Louis. He's also co-author of the new book, Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. That is what we're talking about this hour, the misconceptions, the myths that uh, many or most of us buy into about 
who the poor are in this country, why they are poor, uh, and as a result, uh, then we misunderstand what the solutions are to poverty. Uh, if you would like to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us uh, what do you think needs to happen to make our economy and our country work for everyone, or at least work for most Americans. Uh, do you support policies like the $15 minimum wage or universal basic income? Uh, we especially want to hear from you if you're someone who has experienced poverty. Uh, what do most people not understand about that experience. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we will we will try to work you into the uh, into the conversation. Um, before we get to listeners, Mark, I want to mm-hmm. drill down on one chapter in, in particular and one mm-hmm. point in particular in the book. Um, uh, it starts with the title, Americans, America's Poor Are Worse Off Than Elsewhere. And you, you touched on that in your last answer, mm-hmm. but I want to I dive a little deeper into that. I think that's something that most of us don't think is true about this country. And when we think of other countries, uh, so-called developing nations, uh, places where uh, where we see pictures, you know, of people living in quote-unquote poverty, uh, we tend to think, well, that's that wouldn't happen here in America. So, so what do you mean when you say uh, America's poor are worse off than they are elsewhere? Yeah. So, um, you know, what you're what you're saying uh, is right on target that um, many folks in the United States say would would say, you know, the myth is that, oh, well, people aren't so bad here. Um, uh, They're not so bad off. Um, And um, yes, if you compare the United States with sub-Saharan Africa, um, yeah, that's true. The the poor in the United States aren't as bad off as the poor there. But I don't think that that's the right comparison. I think the proper comparison is other uh, high economy countries like we were talking about Europe and Canada and so on. And if you do that, you find that, um, that, as I was saying before, that the poor uh, in the United States are much worse off in, in many ways than the poor in other countries. Um, and in fact, we actually do have some areas of the country that uh, are really extreme in terms of poverty. So for example, uh, rural Appalachia, the Deep South, the Mississippi Delta, um, American Indian reservations, all of these areas have extreme poverty that in, in some ways matches third world conditions. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, you know, it, it, it's, and I, I would say that in another way that, that America's poor are worse off is we don't have those kind of programs, those kind of universal programs that other countries have, that even though you might be earning below a certain income level, you still have health care, you still have affordable housing, this kind Kind of thing, we don't provide that. So, so this is uh, this is uh, again another myth that folks in the United States are not so um, are not so uh, bad off. Um, it turns out that actually they're they're much worse off than in many other countries. Mm. 
Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about poverty in America with Mark Rank, and we will hear from you. Christopher in Pontiac, Billy in Gross Point, David in St. Clair Shores, we'll get to your comments. We've also got a number of social media comments I want to include in the conversation here. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. My guest is Mark Rank, professor of social welfare at the Brown School at Washington University in St. Louis and co-author of the new book, Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. That's what we're talking about this hour, the myths that surround American poverty and lead us to false solutions uh, for that poverty uh, as a result. Uh, we want to hear from you uh, about your thoughts about ways to solve poverty in this country. Uh, what do you think about the debates that are going on in Washington right now, for instance, about the $15 minimum wage? Uh, what other things do you think we ought to be doing to try to help people get out of poverty in uh, in our country? Uh, also, we want to hear from you if you're somebody who has experienced poverty Uh, in your life, maybe as a child, maybe as a young adult, maybe it's something that's happened to you more recently. Uh, Call and tell us about that experience and tell us what you think people get wrong about those experiences. What are the things that people really misunderstand about poverty from your perspective? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter Put comments there, uh, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, let's start with David in St. Clair Shores. David, welcome to the program. Uh, Stephen, good morning. Uh, Mark, I appreciate you, uh, the conversation we're reading today. And I really like the uh, structural analysis that you gave, particularly the uh, musical chairs example. Mm-hmm. But uh, acknowledging some of my bias, I'm a very big activist and supporter of the labor movement, you had mentioned that so much of so many of the jobs that have been created the last 40 or 50 years have really been low wage. And I guess my question to you is how do we combat the narrative that these jobs are just starter jobs or that these jobs, the people working them, don't generate enough capital to be paid more money? And you have an entire half of our political system that believes that, and you've got a good chunk of the other half of the political party that believes that, too, that what capital you create dictates what you're worth. And we have the position, like you mentioned, where you have people working full-time and more than full-time, but poverty. Uh, David, I really appreciate the call uh, and the question, and I think that's a great a great kind of point to draw out again and, and drill down on this idea of the low-wage economy that uh, that has grown so much over the, the past few few decades. Mark Rank, what's your what's your answer for David? Yeah, yeah, very good, very good insights, David. Um, 
I mean, I would say that uh, kind of what President Biden is saying now, and, and, and folks have been saying for a long period of time, that it's simply wrong in America uh, to be working full time and find yourself in poverty. There's something fundamentally wrong with that, uh, regardless of, of, of whether your job is, you know, a low paid job or, or not. Um, there's something just fundamentally wrong about that. And, and I guess I would say, and we can get to this later, but um, in a way, to make our society and our uh, economy more productive, what we need to do is invest in our people. And what we've been doing for a long period of time is disinvesting in people. But by investing in children, by investing in adults, by paying people a decent wage, we actually will be more productive in this sort of global economy. So I think we can kind of turn that argument, um, David, that you're bringing up, which is, a, which is a good one, but and we can turn it on its head and say, actually, by investing in folks, by paying people a decent wage, they'll be better workers. And there's a lot of research to support that. You know, one of the things that I think is uh, maybe ironic about the growth of uh, this low-wage economy over the last several decades is uh, that it is it is fueled by uh, the same ideology that I think looks down its nose from a moral perspective at people who are poor. So on the one hand, it's providing less opportunity for people to earn decent wages and not be poor. And on the other hand, uh, at the same time, you know, kind of slapping at those people uh, saying that it's their fault that they're poor and that there's somehow there's some sort of moral failing mm -hmm. involved with uh, with being with being poor. Yeah, Stephen, that's a that's a really good point, and that's um, that is definitely how we have tended to view poverty in this country as an individual failing, either as a moral failing because people are lazy, they're not working hard enough, they made bad decisions, or they haven't gotten enough education and skills. So we we've and we often look at various social problems in this country as an individual failing. And what I'm saying here is that really what's going on is a structural failing. We need to we need to get over that mindset. And I believe me, I, I uh, you know, I understand this mindset. I had a book that came out last year that focused on rugged individualism and the United States is steeped in rugged individualism. That is, you do it on your own. You don't depend on others. You don't turn to the government, that kind of thing. Um, but that's that's gotten in the way of us seeing clearly these issues. It's blinded us to these issues. And so, you know, why haven't we done more? Why haven't we reduced poverty in this country? Is it just because people are lazy? I don't think so. You know, I was talking about before the comparison with other countries. So we've got to get over that individual failing mentality and say, you know what? We need to deal with this on a structural level. We need to have jobs that pay a decent wage, such as $15 an hour. Um, and, and many other ideas are out there. Mm. Uh, again, uh, David, uh, thanks very much for the call uh, and the comments. Michael on Twitter says, higher education. There is a common perception that if people in poverty, quote, just get a college degree, they will all get out of poverty. Is getting a college education a false solution? Mark, there's a chapter uh, in the book that, mm -hmm. that talks about this. Raising education and skill levels yeah. will not solve poverty alone. Yeah. Uh, talk about that. Yeah. So let's go back to the musical chairs analogy. Let's suppose that we've got those 
10 players and eight chairs, and now we double everybody's speed. We make everybody more agile. There still are two people that are going to lose, and that's the same thing here. Um, look, I, I'm in higher education, so I think education is important for a number of reasons, but it is not the bullet, the magic bullet for eliminating poverty, because Think about this. If we were overnight to give everybody a college degree, does that mean that all of a sudden those low-wage jobs would go away? No, they wouldn't. They, the people who take those jobs would just be have greater education. So what we need to do is we need, yes, it is important to invest in people, as I said before, but we also have to make sure we increase the number of opportunities in this country. We have to increase the number of decent paying jobs that can support folks. So, and um, yeah, Michael, you know, that, that's a, that is something that, that you hear over and over again. And, and in fact, it turns out increasing an individual's education and skills is an excellent strategy for them to get out of poverty, but it's a zero-sum game. They'll get the better opportunity at the expense of somebody else. Mm. And that's the way we've been thinking about this for a long period of time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's go back to the phones here. Let's go to Gene in Detroit. Gene, welcome to the show. Uh, good morning, Stephen. Hey, Gene. Uh, I'm hoping that your guest can comment about the local policies that uh, our own governments put on us, uh, particularly in a city like Detroit, the tax increment finance areas that give corporate welfare in terms of uh, tax abatements uh, to the rich while over-assessing uh, poor people on their, their property, causing them uh, to lose it through uh, tax eviction, uh, the water shutoffs, uh, the, the, the misuse of things like the hardest hit fund, which was supposed to keep people in their houses, that was turned into demolition of salvageable property, et cetera, ad nauseum. Uh, Gene, uh, really appreciate the call and, and the questions. Uh, uh, Mark, you know, here in Detroit, as Gene points out, there there are these really garish examples of the things we do to accommodate, uh, you know, business at the high end uh, and make it easy for them to do more business, uh, but that we punish at the at the lower end of the economic scale the people who actually live uh, in the city yeah. and and the people who live in poverty. Uh, yeah. It's a great it's a great sort of example of the policy end of this really yeah. being upside down. Yeah. And we, uh, you know, I, I'm in St. Louis and you guys are in Detroit and, you know, the, our, our cities are, are, are probably pretty similar mm -hmm. along these lines that we have the same kind of things here. And so uh, again, what this points out is that those issues that Gene is raising, um, you know, are structural, they're policy. Um, and we can, you know, cities have a long history. I mean, St. Louis is, and, and Detroit as well, of being, you know, highly segregated on the basis of race, um, redlining, this kind of thing. Again, that those are structural issues that need to be addressed. So, um, so I think this is another good illustration of that. So, so one of the really difficult uh, uh, pushbacks, I guess, you get when you raise that is so. For instance, here in in Detroit. Uh, the, the business climate, uh, from a business perspective, is pretty rough. Uh, taxes are high. Uh, uh, insurance is high. 
uh, the cost of doing business is is really pretty steep when you think about it. Um, and so businesses say, well, in order to, to, to locate in Detroit or to build this in Detroit, I need some help. I need help from the government so that uh, I don't I don't lose money. Uh, of course, then we do that, and the the benefit of that business being here uh, doesn't always reach the, the the people who need it the most. It's not that it doesn't have an effect. I mean, it, it certainly does. I mean, there are more jobs uh, in downtown Detroit today than there were ten or twelve years ago because of some of the incentives that we've we've given. The, the problem is that it doesn't reach the people who need it the most. Uh, there's a disconnect between those two things. And I have always thought that government should be the bridge between those things, right? Government's mm-hmm. role should be to make sure that th- these business investments actually help uh, uh, the people in the city, but, but they almost never do. Yeah, I, I think, Stephen, you're you're absolutely right. I think government has a role of being that bridge there. Um, let me let me raise it, uh, another issue that I think is important here mm-hmm. in this discussion, and that is, um, you know, some people will say, and this is kind of related to the the points that you're bringing up. Some people will say, well, you know, um, it, uh, it's just um, it's just too expensive to do anything about poverty. Um, you know, it's too expensive to do something about those conditions in Detroit. And um, what I uh, what I did a couple of years ago was do an analysis, and what we tried to estimate was what is the annual cost, economic cost of childhood poverty in the United States. And so we looked at, we know childhood poverty is related to higher healthcare costs. It's related to um, economic productivity because as children become adults, um, they're less productive if they were raised in poverty. It's related to higher criminal justice costs. So we factored those in and we came up with a, uh, a conservative estimate that childhood poverty costs the United States slightly over $1 trillion a year. Wow. To put that into perspective, that's about, that was about 28% of the entire federal budget. And here's the deal. What we're doing is we're paying for poverty on the back end of the problem rather than on the front end of the problem. And whenever you do that, it's always a lot more expensive to pay for it on the back end. So we're paying for poverty because we're not as economically productive, higher healthcare costs and so on. The other thing that we showed in this study was that for every dollar you spend reducing childhood poverty, you would save between seven and twelve dollars down the road in terms of averting these costs. So not only is addressing poverty the morally right thing to do, but it's also the economically smart thing to do as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a really great way of uh, uh, of making that point. Uh, again, Gene, thanks very much for the call. Uh, let's go to Angela in St. Clair Shores. Angela, welcome to the show. Hey, hey. yeah, thanks for having me on. I just want to say thank you for always engaging on topics that mm-hmm. are very important, you know? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. We, we, we love to do that here. <laughs> go ahead, Angela. Yeah, um, I think that your host is like 100% right. I mean, I think it's the responsibility of the government to set a high minimum wage when, you know, housing is unaffordable, unaffordable for a lot of people, you know, and I think that we also have to reduce the stigma 
that, you know, government programs are inherently bad. Nothing wrong with health care when you can't afford your own, you know, mm-hmm. and free lunches for children. It should not be looked at as, you know, families can't feed their children, but more, more as making sure that a child is fed well, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Angela, uh, you're, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. Um, Mark, in the book, uh, you have a chapter called the U.S. welfare state is is minimal, which kind of puts into context some of the things that uh, that Angela's talking about here. This idea that somehow it, it it would cost us too much or be too burdensome to to help people when they're poor. And in fact, we're we're not doing much of that to begin with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Angela raises a really good point, which is. Um, these programs and poverty in general is is highly stigmatized in the United States, um, and it and it goes back to some of those things we've been talking about, um, the idea of rugged individualism, and so on and so forth. But yeah, the the actual um, um, safety net programs that we have um, are very minimal. Um, you know, if you try to survive on these kinds of programs, you know, good luck. It's it's not the good life. But but you know. Um, uh, in another chapter, we talk about the idea that uh, that actually politicians in particular have used this myth over and over to score political points. So Ronald Reagan was famous for, um, you know, his use of the welfare queen as, as typical of, of folks using a, a safety net program. Bill Clinton ran on the idea of he was going to end welfare as we know it. Donald Trump has talked about welfare in these terms. Um, and so, you know, it, a, a really interesting question here is if there's so much evidence against all of these myths, why do they continue? Mm-hmm. And what we argue is that one of the reasons they continue is because they serve a purpose for certain groups, particularly some groups in, in power. So if you think about um, for example, those at the top, almost all the economic um, gains over the last 40 years have been concentrated in the top 10, 5, and 1%. Um, well, if, if you have the view that I deserve it and those who don't do well deserve it too, then that's an, a nice justification for the status quo. We don't have to do anything. Everything is fine. Um, so, so we need to also step back and say, why do these myths continue? Um, and I think that that's a really important question. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation about poverty and its causes and solutions with Mark Rank. We'll continue to hear from you as well. Christopher and Pontiac, Billy and Gross Point, Myrna and Ypsilanti, John on the east side. We will try to get to you next. And as well, we'll try to get to some of the social media comments that we have. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. I'm Mary Zatina, and as my grandma would say, our chickens have come home to roost. We kept putting off the huge investment of a new transmitter. We thought we could eke out another year with a little more duct tape and elbow crease. We set aside money in the budget last year for a down payment on a new transmitter, but I kicked that can down the road to try to end the year in the black during COVID. 
WDET is so lean, we have often robbed Peter to pay Paul, as they say, and now is our day of reckoning. Our main transmitter is broken and can't be repaired. Our backup transmitter is no spring chicken at 34 years old, so we're shopping around for a new transmitter that will power up WDET for the future. And yes, it will cost money we did not anticipate. Money can't buy happiness, as grandma would say, but if you love our news, music, and conversation, money can buy the new transmitter to get WDET to you. Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. Talking about poverty this hour on Detroit Today with Mark Rank, professor of social welfare at the Brown School at Washington University in St. Louis and co-author of the new book, Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. We'll hear from you as well this hour, 313-577-1019. Call us and tell us what you think the solutions are uh, to poverty. Tell us if you're somebody who has experienced poverty as a uh, uh, Mark's book points out man, the majority of Americans uh, will experience at some point in their adult lives something really different than the way we think of poverty in uh, in our country. Uh, give us a call. Let us know what your experiences have been like and let us know what you think people misunderstand about poverty. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there. And we'll try to work them in as well. Let's go to Christopher in Pontiac. Christopher, welcome to the show. Hello. Uh, capital, I mean, not capitalism, but uh, poverty is intrinsic in every economic uh, uh, economy that is known and that we now have on the planet. Um, my name is Christopher, and I'm here to say that we must do what the almighty dollar says and as God put every person, place, and thing into trust or endowment, hmm. you know what I'm Christopher, saying, Christopher. Christopher, that's a, I, look. That's an interesting. That's an interesting idea. But your first point that poverty is intrinsic in capitalism, I think, is 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 really powerful. And and I think there are a lot of people, uh, especially on the left right now, who who believe that and believe that. Uh, the problem we have is not just systemic, but about the nature of the system that we have, that maybe we need a different kind of economy. Mark Rank, how do you respond to that uh, that accusation against capitalism? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I teach a course on poverty here um, every semester, and, and we talk about different kind of explanations for poverty. And one of them is, is that, that poverty is simply a byproduct of capitalism. Um, I think there's definitely some truth to that. On the other hand, I think you could say, you know, you could counter that by saying, um, you know, look at, for example, what's happened in China. China used to have, you know, over a billion people in poverty. Today, I, I saw on the news, you know, um, the president there declared that there's no longer extreme poverty in China, but they, they really reduced poverty significantly. And they've done that through their economy, um, which, which is sort of taking, you know, a capitalist kind of focus. So uh, the way that I would think about this is that, yes, um, oftentimes poverty is the result of our economic structure. 
And that's, Stephen, what you were saying about government being a bridge. Here's a perfect example. Government should play a role in terms of what we might think of as softening the harsh edges of capitalism. Hmm. That's what countries in Europe do. That's what Canada does. You know, if you just let capitalism run its course, uh, laissez-faire capitalism, you're going to have extreme inequality and poverty. So you need to have that bridge in terms of the government kind of softening that those rough edges. Yeah, that's a really great that's a really great way to to, to put that kind of softening those uh, mm-hmm. those rough edges of uh, capitalism. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, Christopher, thanks very much for the call uh, and the comments. Let's go to Mirna in Ypsilanti. Myrna, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks. Um, very interesting conversation and very good point about using uh, poor people as scapegoats. Um, but uh, LBJ, you know, Lyndon Baines Johnson, he had the war on poverty back in the 60s. We're still fighting that, and we still have poverty. And I don't know if we've ever had this many homeless people. Hmm. So I'm just wondering what the professor thinks of yeah. Andrew Yang's theory that you should give people uh, $1,000 or $2,000 a month. You know, without them having to do anything. Yeah, universal basic income, yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. Yeah, so um, two points here. Um, you're exactly right. In 1964, LBJ declared a war on poverty. Um, what happened to poverty? It, poverty in 1959, uh, it was uh, the poverty rate was 22%. By 1973, it was 11%. Poverty had been cut in half because of those programs and because of the robust economy. So Ronald Reagan was famous for saying we fought a war on poverty and poverty won. No, we fought a war on poverty and and we reduced it in half. Mm -hmm. Now that war then got, got, um, you know, sort of uh, taken over by Vietnam and other things. But it, it was an example of showing that you can really have an effect on reducing poverty through these structural kinds of things that I've been pointing out. Another clear example of this is for the elderly. In 1959, the poverty rate for the elderly was around 35%. Today, it's around 9 or 10%. Why did that happen? It has nothing to do with individual failing. It has everything to do with structural programs, Social Security and Medicare. Mm. They had a significant impact on reducing poverty for the elderly. If there was no Social Security today, the poverty rate for the elderly, instead of being 10%, would be 40%. So that's another example of government really having a strong impact. Now, to the point of the universal basic income that Andrew Yang had brought up, and actually there's a a lot of talk in the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Um, It's an interesting idea. It's an idea that goes back, actually, it has a long history to it. Uh, Thomas Paine in 1776 proposed that idea. Mm -hmm. Um, Richard Nixon in the early 70s proposed it, and and it almost became part of our policy um, uh, in terms of a negative income tax. I think it's it's interesting. It's a it's a straightforward way of saying you know poverty is a lack of money. Let's just uh, give folks more money. I think it's also a hard sell in the United States because of the mindset that we have that oh you're giving people something for nothing um, and 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 that's that's going to be a tough sell. But what I do see happening, which is really interesting is a subset of that, which is the child allowance. So both President Biden 
and Senator Romney have proposed a child allowance, which is that if you have a child, we're going to give you some assistance to help raise that child. Mm. Um, and everybody is pretty much entitled to that. Um, and that's kind of a, an interesting variation on the universal basic income. And a child allowance has been, uh, it has been happening in, in European countries for decades. So it's nothing new, but it, it's new to our discussion here. And that's why I'm kind of guardedly optimistic that we might be moving in the right direction in terms of really addressing some of these issues. Mm, yeah, yeah. The conversation certainly has changed, uh, especially in the last yeah. uh, in the last few months. Uh, yeah. uh, so Graham on Twitter has a really interesting question. He says, "How do you keep people from voting against their own interests? Clearly articulate policies that will help poor folks and actually deliver on them while in political office." I think that is a really key key question here. Some of the policies that we're talking about are perpetuated by voters in the poorest parts of the country and and by voters who are among the poorest people. They believe strongly in in many cases that uh, they ought to be, you know, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps or at least other poor people ought to be pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. How do you convince people that uh, that they're that they will be better off with these kinds of policies? Yeah, I know that's that is uh, one of the million dollar questions because uh, Graham is absolutely right that um, that folks are often voting against their their interests and and these ideas um, are are also held you know by um, people in poverty. Um, I did some work a, a, a while ago um, on with welfare recipients and I asked people. Um, you know, why did you experience um, welfare? And they would say, well, things happen. I lost a job. And then I would ask the question, why do you think most people are in, on welfare? And they would say that they're lazy and so on and so forth. Um, I think there's another thing here, though, that's going on. And that is um, the issue of race, that race has often gotten in the way of low-income whites and low-income blacks and, and folks of color from seeing their common interests. And I'll give you a great quote from this, and this is also going back to LBJ. This was in 1960. He was talking to an aide, and I'm just looking here at my book, and, and this is what he says. I'll tell you what's at the bottom of it. If you can convince the lowest white man that he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. Hmm. Wow. And that's what's been that's what has been going on for a long time in this country. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Graham, uh, thanks very much for that comment uh, and that question. Let's go to David in Detroit. David. Welcome hey, hi show. guys. How you doing? Thanks Good. for having me on. Yeah. So I'm a, a CPA uh, by background. I don't practice every day, but I think fundamentally there's a, a major issue that needs to be, uh, you know, addressed. And it's a thing about uh, Amazon in in Alabama right now. Unionism. Mm -hmm. There's a company that is one of the most progressive companies in the world, and they're trying to abate a union forming there to have the proper uh, benefits and pay for the people working there. And this is an affordability issue. They mm -hmm. can afford to pay. There's a lot of employers that cannot afford to pay even minimum wage if, it's go if it goes up to this $15. But here's an example of somebody 
that is literally irresponsible in their approach. They're actually protesting through the city to remove traffic uh, lights so that people can't speak to the uh, people driving by about trying yeah. to form this union. No, I, I so saw that, uh, David. It's, it's horrible. Yeah, it's, it's, just, a, it's just a horrible situation. I mean, you know, where is his responsibility? Yeah. Uh, you know, great, great question. Great question, David. Mm-hmm. And, and that issue... You know, it's it's in Alabama right now, where you know uh, this this Amazon uh, uh, this Amazon installation is trying to resist unionism. Every time I read a story about that, Mark, I think mm-hmm. it could be it could be 1960 uh, mm-hmm. in, in Alabama. I mean, this is such a long running fight in this country uh, to get the, you know the power of collective bargaining into workplaces. Uh, but but there are also a lot of people who question still, I think, whether that is a solve for poverty, whether unions uh, make sure yeah. that uh, that people yeah. don't work in poverty. Yeah, no, um, that's it. I think that's a key piece of the puzzle. And David was raising this interesting question about what is corporate responsibility? You know, I think that that has really fallen by the wayside. It used to be in the United States that you know, employers and employees were kind of in this together. Um, but that has really fallen fallen again by the wayside. And if you look at unionization in the United States in the 1950s, it was about, about 35% of people in the private industry were in union jobs. Today, that's around 6%. And I think that that's a big part of this story of low-wage work, that unions have become weaker over time because of various um, things that have happened. You know, Ronald Reagan was famous for firing the air traffic controllers that really kind of started us down this road. Um, and and that is, I think, a, a really, really important. And, and the issue with the Amazon is really interesting because, as David says, it, this is not a poor com- company. Um, this is a company that could do something about this um, and yet is is fighting this tooth and nail. And, and, and the question then is, don't they have some kind of corporate responsibility to their employees? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a fundamental question. We need to call, you know, as David is doing, call them out for what they're what they're doing right now. Well, and, and Amazon's a really interesting example, as David points out, because it is a really progressive company in some ways. Yeah. Right. But in this way, it's it's really retrograde, yeah. and that makes it that even makes it harder, I think, to 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 push back and to say, well, yeah. what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, uh, uh, let's get one more quick call in here. We're almost running out of time, but uh, Ed in Detroit. Ed, welcome to the show. Good conversation. Thank you. Your guest has alluded to the issue of race and poverty, uh, but I'd like him to delve into it a bit deeper. In Cities Without Suburbs, the author pointed out that most people of color who are poor live in poor neighborhoods, with the exception of Appalachia. Most people who are white and poor live in middle-class neighborhoods. Mm. So we tend not to see poverty. Right. Uh, if your guest could, could stretch that out yeah. a bit and explain how it works. Mark, I've only got about 40 seconds left. I know that's not <laughs> enough, but uh, but go ahead and answer Ed's question. Uh, no, no. Excellent. Excellent point, Ed. Um, that is, I think you are exactly right, that that if you're a, if you're someone of color, you're more likely to be living in a in a concentrated poverty neighborhood than if you're white. So I think that that's, that's very much the case. Although, just as a final point, 
only about um, 10 to 15 percent of everybody in poverty actually lives in a high poverty neighborhood. Right. So, right. Yeah. OK, Mark Rank, this was a really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks, Stephen. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Tune in tomorrow for an update with Detroit Public Schools Community District Superintendent Dr. Nikolai Vitti. Plus, a recent Britney Spears documentary is bringing to light a new era of reappraising the role of young women in pop culture and how the media portray them. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Uh, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.